The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one. And he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. These words penned by A.W. Tozer in 1948 in his book, The Pursuit of God, really sum up Tozer's passion to know the Lord, to know intimately our God and our Savior. That was his life's pursuit. And that's where we'd like to direct our thoughts this morning as we consider the triumphant Christian life. This has been our theme for a number of weeks now. The triumphant Christian life is living a life that's characterized by spiritual victory, by peace, by maturity, by devotion. We put it this way, living a life that's worth imitating, that someone else could look at your life and say, that's triumph. And we've been allowing this to be our focus here in John chapter 13 and 14. And all we've been doing is identifying the elements which make up and which give us that triumphant Christian life. Those things with which we fill our lives, which result in a steady, stable, predictable pattern of spiritual victory. And this morning, the element that we'd like to consider is the God-filled life. The God-filled life. Now, I realize that that may go down in history as the most unnecessary sermon title in history. Because, I mean, isn't that what we talk about all the time? That's what we're always talking about. Yes, it is. But it is possible to attempt to live the Christian life as what some have called a practical atheist. To live as one who puts a wall of separation between life and between God, living as if there is no God. R.C. Sproul wrote that it's deadly to the church, quote, when the external forms of religion are maintained while their substance is discarded. It is possible for the church to believe all the right things and do the wrong things. We need right faith, initiating right action, honest faith, joined with honest action, bears witness to a real God and a real Christ. That's very aptly put, very well said. So how do I fill my life with God? How do I avoid that trap of being a practical atheist where I separate God and my life? Now, when I say filling your life with God, I don't mean in the salvation sense. I mean, as a believer in Christ, how do I further saturate my thinking and my my mind and my heart in God? Well, the most direct route to filling your life with God is to fill your mind with Christ. Because when you do that, if you've seen Christ, you've seen God. Which is basically the entire point of the Gospel of John, by the way. And that's where we return to now in chapter 14. We're considering today chapter 14 Verses 4 through 11, verse 4 is really kind of a transition verse that we looked at last week as well. But we pick up our story here with Jesus in the upper room as he's instructing his disciples for the final time before his arrest and and crucifixion. Last time we saw that Jesus is informing his disciples that he's going away, 
that he'll be rejoining his father in heaven. He's going to his father's house. But he promised that he would return to take all that belonged to him by faith to to where he is, to take them home. And he finishes by surprising them. He tells them, you already know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And so let's pick up with that little surprise in chapter 14, verse 4 of the Gospel of John. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, in these power-packed few verses, the Lord Jesus Christ really reveals the, the mystery of the unity and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And, and this is just layered with truths for us. But his basic point is in verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's his whole point. So how do I fill my life with God? Fill your thoughts with Christ. It's really that simple. And I'd like to extract some thoughts concerning Christ from this marvelous text for us. The first thought concerning Christ is that Christ is the way to God. Christ is the way to God. Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going away, but he'll return to take them to himself. We saw last time that Jesus was referring to his coming ascension into heaven after his resurrection. And he promised that those who follow him will ultimately be taken to where he is, heaven as it is right now. What Jesus calls my father's house. Returning back to verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. But they're thinking geographically. They're thinking like a map. And so Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So he took, Thomas took about 0.1 seconds to not think about this and just ask the question. You say we know the way, but we don't. We don't know the way. Jesus is going away and Thomas thinks he doesn't know how to get there. Now, I think it's really poignant. I think it's, I think it's very emotional And I think it's special that Thomas asked this question. He's not being impertinent. He's not being difficult. He loved the Lord so very much. And immediately, Jesus said, you know where I'm going. And Thomas is thinking, I don't. And so I want to find out. After the death of Christ, a devastated Thomas secluded himself from the other men. And it took eight more days after the resurrection of Christ for Thomas to finally see his risen Lord and to say, my Lord and my God, he was devastated at being separated from Christ. So of course it's Thomas who asks that question. Jesus said, you know the way I'm going. And Thomas said, no, I don't. And I don't want to miss out. 
And so in response to Thomas's question, how can we know the way? Jesus said in verse 6, famously, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is speaking directly to Thomas, who goes down in history as being the one Jesus addressed when giving this marvelous truth. But Jesus, he's not just explaining the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. If I could put it this way, the the way is not a principle. The way is a person. The way is not in the systems of God. The way is in the Son of God. And the way is not Christianity. The way is Christ. Christianity is not the answer. Christ is the answer. Christianity is the result. The way speaks of a a connection between two points that come together, that you have a point here and a point here. And there, there must be a pathway. In this case, the two points are sinners and God. And Jesus is the link. He is what brings them together. This connection between sinners and God, this is the role of mediation. He alone, if I could put it this way, holds the hand of God and holds the hand of mankind. And he alone can bring them together by which sinners might touch the hand of God and see the face of God. Now, some have said that John fourteen six is very inclusive, that Jesus is saying with open arms, that all, regardless of what you believe, are welcome. That's the idea that all roads lead to God. But this isn't inclusive. This is the opposite. This is exclusive. This is extremely exclusive. In fact, you see the presence of the definite article before each of these elements. I am the way and the truth and the life. He's not a way. He is the way. It indicates that he's claiming exclusivity, that only in Christ can you find the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no all roads lead to God. Jesus has already made many exclusive statements in John's gospel. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door of the sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And when he's talking about how to get to God, he never uses the pronoun we. It's me. I am the way. Peter preached in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. He is the way. Christ alone is the way to God. A second thought concerning Christ. Christ is the truth of God. Christ is the truth of God. Jesus is the the sole and only authoritative representative of God. He hears what God says. He obeys what God tells him to do. Chapter 5, chapter 8 of John tells us this. He unveils God like no one ever had before. Why? Because he's the only eyewitness to God. He's the one who has seen God and come from God. This is how the gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 18. He's seen God. And so he is the single source of information about God. And again, he doesn't just claim to know the truth of God. He claims to be the truth of God. But Jesus being the truth is really rich in its implications. And I, I want to dig down a little bit into this. We recall the beginning of the gospel, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Jesus came to earth as a man. The humanity of Christ is vital to understanding the glory of Christ because as a, as a human, he entered into sinful, corrupt, our sinful, corrupt system, into our sinful, corrupt world, and he left the perfect sinlessness of heaven. And so the question we have to ask, really the question of the ages, is can God enter the world as a man and still be sinless and perfect, still be true? And how would he accomplish his ministry as a man? Well, we find the answer in that phrase that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Other scriptures help us understand this. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him in a unique way for his ministry. And as a man, Jesus would rely on the Holy Spirit perfectly. Luke 4, 1 tells us what happened immediately following. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Satan himself tempted Jesus with temptations, by the way, that not one of you could withstand for two seconds. And yet Jesus did. Jesus proved the perfection of his deity. He proved his complete 100% yieldedness to the power of the Holy Spirit as a man. You put that together with Acts 6 verse 8, which speaks of Stephen as one who was full of grace and power. A group of men in the church said in Acts 6 verse 3 to be full of the Holy Spirit. You put all this together, when, when Jesus is spoken of as being full of grace and truth, this has a strong association with him being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the power to do all that God would have him to do and to accurately represent all that God is. Jesus is fully God, fully deity, and as such he cannot sin, but we never can forget that he's fully human as well. And as such, he was perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered not to sin. He was empowered to do all that he was sent to do. And that's why Luke 4.1 tells us that before Jesus' temptation, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And there are major implications to this. Because what did he do as one full of the Holy Spirit, full of truth? He did everything that his father sent him to do. John 17, he was perfectly sinless in literally every word he said. First Peter 2, he perfectly structured every day so as to accomplish a lifetime of ministry in just three and a half years. He never once took human vengeance on those who were oppressing and killing him. He even healed one of the men who, were, who was arresting him. He never uttered a sinful word, never did a sinful deed, never had a sinful thought. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he preached the kingdom message with power, clarity, and skill like no one before or after ever has. He preached parables that an illiterate farmer could understand, and yet scholars have been trying to study for 20 centuries. He obeyed the law of Moses in perfection, and he ignored the false traditions of men in perfection. Every time people asked questions intended to trap Jesus into sinning, he eluded the trap, how? With truth. Someone asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? His answer, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. <clears throat> Couldn't get him. Every time the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to trick Jesus, 
His answers were not only perfect truth, but put the one questioning him in his place. And the great benefit to us of Jesus living that perfect life of truth is that he did so on our behalf. He fulfilled the law, and thus he can present himself to God as our true representative. We who have violated God's standards at every turn. He lived a life of perfect truth because he is the truth of God. And this is so important because now when you gaze upon Christ, when you read of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly in in Paul's letter to the Colossians, read of Christ in Hebrews, read of the ultimate glory of Christ in Revelation. Everything you learn that is true of Christ is true of God. He is our ultimate theology textbook. Let me give you a third thought concerning Christ. Christ is the life of God. He's the life of God. Again, we could return to the beginning of the gospel. John 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And this is very interesting because the apostle John equates life and light. Some of the most representative words in the gospel of John. Light and life both have in times eschatological connections as well. In this world now, there's spiritual darkness and death, but in the age to come, there is light and life. The first words, spoken words of God given in Scripture, and God said, let there be light. This is the first creative act, and later God places lights in the sky to separate the light and the darkness because light makes life possible. That's why he made light on the first day, and he makes life on the third, fifth, and sixth days of creation. God is the source of physical life and spiritual life. Eternal life is possible only in him because he is life. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul came to Athens. And what do you preach to pagans who don't know God, don't know anything about God, have never opened the Bible? What do you preach to pagans? Well, here's what Paul did. He pointed out that they have an altar to the unknown God. And he said, I know who he is. And so he expresses what theologians call the aseity or the self-existence of the true God. He said in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. God is self-existent. And somebody says, where does God get all of his power? From God. Where does God get his life? From God. God gets his life because he is life. We can't exist in the first place, nor continue to live physically, nor continue to live spiritually without his life. He has always lived He's always been. And so for Jesus to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, that is a direct claim to deity. He's the source of all that lives. He claimed in chapter 11 not just to be the source of all that live, he claimed to be the source of all that would live again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Christ is the life of God. There's a fourth thought concerning Christ. Christ is the knowledge of God. 
Christ is the knowledge of God. If you want to know God, you must know Christ. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now, the pronoun you here, it's plural. So now Jesus is turning from Thomas to the whole group. He's addressing all of them. And from here on out, in the rest of this passage, Jesus is going to express this profound unity and mutuality of relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, just in case you're wondering here, when he says, if you had known me, he's not questioning whether the disciples are true believers or not. Judas is gone. Earlier in the conversation, chapter 13, verse 10, he told them, you are clean, meaning these 11 men that he's now speaking to, and he's referring that their status is that of being in the faith. He's not questioning their faith. What he's saying here is that if they really completely grasped who Jesus was, they would have grasped that everything that they're learning about Christ, they're learning about God. They're learning about the Father. They have known him quite well. They've known him well enough to leave their homes, to leave their businesses, to leave everything to follow him. But they haven't known him in his full significance. They must continue to grasp the the glories and the wonder of Christ. Can I put it this way? They need to understand that Christ is the window through which they look to see God. And when they come to look through the window of Christ and they see God, they see Christ. That the window is God. A claim to full and total deity. But to know God requires a covenant with God. This is covenantal knowledge in the sense of acknowledging the covenant bond with God. If you had known me, this is very covenantal and I want to show this to you. In the 8th century BC, the prophet Hosea records the deep sadness and disappointment of God at how Israel had rebelled against him and would have to be disciplined. But Listen to God's appeal. Listen to the covenant language of knowing him. Hosea 13, verses 4 and 5. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God saying, I was your one and only. I was the one who saved you. And consistent with the whole book of Hosea, this is, this is themed around the idea of marriage, of the exclusivity of the marriage relationship. He says, you know no God but me, I who knew you in the wilderness. The word for know is not only used in the Hebrew Old Testament for relational knowledge, it's used as a euphemism for marital intimacy. That unique bond and knowledge of one another, which is exclusive, it's special, it's mysterious. Such as Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Marital love represents that exclusivity, that uniqueness, that selectiveness of knowing God in a covenant sense. And God promises a restored future for Israel, a day when she will return to him in repentance Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. That's covenant knowledge. That's intimate knowledge. And they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The the knowledge we're speaking of here, this isn't just an intellectual understanding of God. The correct answer when somebody says, well, I believe in God, the correct answer is, so? 
Do you have a covenant knowledge of God? Do you have a covenant relationship with God? This sort of knowledge is rooted in relationship. It's rooted in a commitment from God to you and you to God. That's covenant. So when Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. There is such a rich relationship. You ready for this? What he's saying is, if you have a covenant relationship with me, you automatically have a covenant relationship with God. It's automatic. Because Christ is the knowledge of God. Here's a fifth thought concerning Christ. Christ is the fullness of God. Christ is the fullness of God. The second half of verse 7. From now on you do know him and have seen him. What does he mean by from now on? Well, this is referring to the time very shortly after Jesus has ascended into heaven and has sent the Holy Spirit. Then and only then will the disciples fully understand the deity of Christ and his intimate relationship with the Father. This represents something new. Something has changed. He says, from now on. I mean, even earlier, Jesus gave a pretty broadly sweeping principle. He said in John uh, 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. In other words, even as recently as John 6, Jesus is claiming exclusive status as the only one who has seen God. Why? Because he's the only one who just came from heaven. But now, from now on, you have seen the Father as well. This is important because in the Old Testament, people are told to know God. God told a future rebellious earth to be warned that he's coming to take over. He said in Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Numbers of times in the Old Testament, God says that he's going to do something so that, and this is important, in the future, quote, people shall know that I am the Lord. That's said multiple times. I'm going to do something so that, future tense, they shall know that I am the Lord. But in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God is very often thought of as something that's coming that you don't have fully yet. It's a future blessing, not an immediate possession. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God is strongly associated with the fullness of God's kingdom plan coming to fruition, and more importantly, the fullness of God's king, his Messiah, coming to reign and restore all things. Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 10, God is speaking to Israel about their future hope. And he says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but there's a little bit of an unusual problem here. He says, I will come and dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That's God talking. And you shall know that the Lord has sent me. God talking is saying that God sent me. The person speaking in Zechariah 2 must be and can only be a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that he will be sent by God as God to dwell 
in the midst of his people. Now, the emphasis there is on the second coming of Christ when he physically rules on earth, a future hope to know God. But that makes this statement that Jesus makes at the end of verse 7 absolutely stunning. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. There's an immediacy now. There's an imminence now that you don't see so much in the Old Testament. We've already seen this in John's gospel a little bit. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Present tense, imminent, immediate. John 17, 3, in a couple of chapters from now, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christ is the fullness of God. You have seen the Father if you have seen Christ. Here's a sixth thought concerning Christ. Christ is the appearance of God. Christ is the appearance of God. And in one of the most socially awkward moments in the entire gospel, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. <sighs> That'll suck the spiritual air right out of the room. You don't say that. How humiliating. I wonder if in heaven, Philip reads John 14 and says, why do we have to leave that in? That's the dumbest question I've ever asked. But we don't want to be too hard on Philip. This is a good longing. This is a godly thing that he desires. And God has responded to that request in the past, and he's done this in the past. At the inaugural of, inauguration rather of God's covenant with Israel, God manifested himself to 74 of Israel's leaders. Exodus 24 records that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Moses requested to see God's glory and was given a limited vision of God in Exodus 33. Ezekiel wrote that while he was walking by a canal in Babylon as an exile, quote, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Isaiah was given a vision of, quote, the Lord sitting high upon a throne, high and lifted up, Isaiah 6.1. By the way, do you know what Isaiah also saw? He was given the knowledge that the glory of God would be revealed in his Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we saw when we were in John chapter 12, verse 41, that confirms that the vision which God saw, that Isaiah saw of God was actually a vision of Christ. That Christ is the, the appearance of God. So when Philip says, show us the Father, this is a good request. This is a godly request. But it's one which disappoints Jesus because there's no need to ask for an appearance of God when you've been living with him for three years. There's a note of sadness as Jesus answers him. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The disciples were still thinking of Jesus in terms of their own messianic expectations, that Jesus would take over the kingdom any minute now. They continued to be confused even after the resurrection. Acts 1 verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time 
restore the kingdom to Israel. And when he was being lifted up into heaven, they said to themselves, I think the answer is no. It is possible to treat Jesus as if he's not fully God, to treat him as merely my buddy who exists to get me through the hard parts of my life. That is, frankly, the prevailing winds in American evangelicalism, that that's who Jesus is. Jesus is my pal to get me through my life, to fulfill my will for my life. In her book, Girl, Stop Apologizing, Rachel Hollis writes this sequel to her book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and Rachel Hollis hails right here from Bakersfield. And in her few mentions of her professed faith in Jesus, she makes it very clear why Jesus exists. Jesus exists to help her achieve her lifelong dreams and to be all that she wants to be. And in the process, she presents herself as the real model to follow. She presents a picture of womanhood that's completely antithetical, opposite to what Scripture teachers teaches. It's just feminism wrapped in a package of pseudo-Christianity. There's no elevation of Christ. There's no acknowledgement of the great and mighty Savior that he is God, fully God. And Hollis really represents the very worst things about cultural American pop Christianity. She's not trying to live a God-filled life. She's living a Rachel-filled life. And if you read anything she's read, Rachel is the hero of her own story and her own best inspiration. She was interviewed on the YouTube channel Jesus Calling. That tells you a lot about the channel right there. She starts off by saying, quote, Our potential is our gift from God. What we're capable of is our gift from God. The Bible never says that. What it does say is Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace and faith and salvation in Christ, that's the gift. She goes on to say, I can't fathom anything more horrifying than you dying with all your potential left inside of you. How about dying without ever having known God in Christ and having to face Jesus Christ, not as your Savior, but as your judge? I want all my potential inside of me when I die because I want to die now. I want to go to heaven now. This is just the female version of your best life now. It's all it is. Listen, people have been trying to figure out the question, how can I see God for millennia? And the answer has been right here all the time. If you want to see God, if you want to see an appearance of God, just see Christ. Elevate Christ. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint the exact representation of his nature christ is the appearance of god and by the way it is the will of the father that you focus your attention on christ it is the will of the spirit that you focus your attention on christ the mission of god the father the mission of god the spirit has always been to elevate christ because by elevating christ the entire trinity is elevated Christ is the appearance of God. Let me give you a seventh thought concerning Christ. Christ is the essence of God. Christ is the essence of God. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus isn't just saying that he has some sort of functional, temporary equivalence 
with the Father. He isn't merely an agent of God working on behalf of God. Jesus is claiming to be completely equal to God in terms of being the object of our faith. In fact, back in verse 1, he said, Believe in God. Believe also in me. If I could put it this way, Jesus was being purposefully redundant. If you want to believe in God, you must believe in me, and vice versa. It's not just that Jesus is on a heavenly mission as a, as a representative of the Father. More than that, the Father himself is on a mission through Christ. Listen, Jesus isn't just a manifestation of God. Jesus is God made manifest. And there's a difference. This is the core truth of Christianity. This is what divides false pseudo-Christian faith from the true faith, and that is what you think of Christ. He can't just be a good man or a good teacher because he's teaching that he's equal to God, and if he's merely a man, then he's deceiving everyone who's listening to him. That makes him a bad man and a bad teacher. And if he is just a good man who genuinely in his heart believes he's God, then that just makes him a nutcase that nobody should follow. The only choice left is that his claim is true. He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Jesus said it this way back in chapter 10, I and the Father are one. When he said that, by the way, the Jewish unbelievers knew exactly what he was saying. They picked up stones to murder Jesus because they understood he was claiming full equality with God, to be the essence of God. He's not just saying, when he says, I and the Father are one, he's not just saying that we're in agreement or that we have unity. The Jews accusing him even said, we're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Christ is the essence of God. Let me give you an eighth thought concerning Christ. Christ is the word of God. He is the word of God. The second half of verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us here in John's gospel. This was the opening salvo introducing Jesus Christ. In the very first verse, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, John comes out with guns blazing about exactly who Jesus is. He is the Word of God. John the Baptist affirmed that Jesus spoke the very words of God. John 3, verse 34, For he whom God has sent others the words of God. That's quite a claim. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. No one else can claim that. Others can claim the words I have spoken to you are interesting, but no one can claim that my words are spirit and life. Peter affirmed in John 6, 68, he said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus claimed to teach what God has spoken directly to him John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And this is all in accordance with the prophesied Messiah, a prophet who speaks the words of God, who would come 1,400 years earlier. God told Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I mean, listen, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. How do scribes teach? They quote each other. Well, this scribe said this and this scribe said that. Jesus didn't quote anybody except God. And people would ask, where do you get these words? From God. Here's a telling testimony. John chapter 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the uh, sent officers of the temple to arrest Jesus. And they didn't do it. They came back empty-handed. The leaders grilled them. Why did you not bring him? John seven forty six. the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And they're saying, have you heard this guy? Why would we arrest him? In fact, in one little package, one dynamic, stunning statement, the Apostle Paul equates what God says with what Christ says and makes saving faith in God dependent upon what Christ says. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Did you know that there are numbers of theologians who don't like the red leather Bibles in which the words of Jesus are written in red? The translation committee of the New International Version wrote, quote, The issuing of red leather editions is a publisher's choice, one the translation committee does not endorse. Now, why does that make Bible translators nervous because of the potential to make the words which Christ spoke while he was on earth of greater value than the entirety of the word of God. Because if the Bible is the word of Christ, then theoretically it should all be in red. Now, don't, you don't have to go slip your red leather Bible into your bag on the way out and try and smuggle it out. We're not going to check. We won't have a red leather security checkpoint on the way out. But just remember that the entirety of Scripture is the word of Christ because Christ is the word of God. Let me give you a ninth thought concerning Christ. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the power of God. Did you notice how interchangeably in verse 10 the words of God in Christ and the works of God in Christ are? In verse 10, the words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And so Jesus urges full belief, full faith. In verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, that men ought to believe what Jesus says. If they refuse, they ought to at least consider his works. John five thirty six. Jesus said, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says the same thing in John 10. Listen, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It is an intellectual, tangible faith that has a basis in fact. Here is the basis for our faith. Jesus must be worthy to be the object of our faith. And for him to be worthy of our faith, he must be equal to God. And to prove that he is equal to God, he has demonstrated his power, power which only God has. How did he do that? Well, he proved his power over nature 
He turned water into wine. He miraculously fed 5,000 Jews. He miraculously fed 4,000 Gentiles. He stilled a storming sea. He walked around on water. He made money appear in fish's mouths. He withered a fig tree with a word. He made fish swim into a fishing net twice. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. He cast out demons from children, men, and women, and on occasion did it several thousand at a time. He proved his power over nature, over demons. He proved his power over sickness. He healed the nobleman's son. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He healed the crippled. He healed the paralyzed. He healed a a chronically bleeding woman. He healed leprosy. He healed edema, which is related to congestive heart failure. It's called dropsy in the Bible. He created a new ear on one where it had been cut off. He has power over nature, over demons, over sickness. He proved his power over death. He raised a little girl from the dead. He raised a young man from the dead at his own funeral, by the way. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And just to top it off, he raised himself from the dead. And he has power over sin. He healed the paralyzed man in Capernaum to prove that he has the power to forgive sin. These are all things only God can do. Earlier, Jesus made the same plea to examine his works. John 10, 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Christ is the power of God. And... Let me give you a tenth thought concerning Christ so that you can live a God-filled life. Christ is the triumph of God. Christ is the triumph of God. And for this, you have to, we have to return all the way back to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But right before that, he said, You know the way that I'm going. You know where I'm going. So why would he say this? Because they don't need a roadmap. They need a redeemer. And they know the way. Can I give you a really easy way to understand this? The easiest way to understand what he's telling them is just capitalize the word way. You know the way. That's me. And I'm the one who will get you home to the Father's house. Jesus is the means by which men come to God, not just in a spiritual salvation sense, but in the literal sense of taking the same road that Jesus has already taken. Now, what do we mean by this? He said, I am the way, meaning the way to my Father's house. Jesus went to the Father by means of crucifixion, by means of his own death. He said, I am the truth. And remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about life beyond the grave. Mankind has been desperate to know this truth since the beginning of time. And Jesus alone is that truth of how one may triumph over death. Only in him is that satisfied. Only in him is that yearning answered. Only in him is the knowledge of what it, of what it takes to cheat death achieved. And he says, I am the life. Jesus was, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20, raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to die and to be raised never to die again. That's the ultimate triumph. 
Jesus Christ is the triumph of God over sin. Jesus Christ is the triumph of God over death. And in the future, he'll be the means by which the Christian will rise from the dead. In other words, we'll go by faith the same way he went. That by following him by faith, first he triumphed over death, and then by the countless millions we follow in triumph. Now let me see if I can put this in perspective for you, and let's paint an accurate picture of what it means that Jesus is the triumph of God and what that means for us. I think we can safely assume that when Jesus ascended into heaven, having been victorious from the grave, I don't think as he was entering into his domain, I don't think the angels just looked and said, oh, hey, Jesus. I I don't think God the Father said, oh, it's nice to have you back. I, I don't think that went unnoticed. Having accomplished all of his Father's will, I think we can assume with fair confidence that the reentry of Jesus into heaven in the first ever glorified, resurrected human body was a momentous occasion. In fact, right before his arrest, here's what Jesus prayed. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, keep that in mind, what the entrance of Jesus into heaven must have been like. And listen to this. Luke 15 tells us that when one sinner, one of you, when one sinner on earth repents, that there is joy in heaven. In fact, verse 10 of Luke 15 says specifically, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Literally in Greek, joy in the sight of, in the view of the angels of God. Meaning the angels aren't just participating in the joy, they're watching the joy. Who else is there to rejoice? It's God himself. This is a picture of of a grand rejoicing, God rejoicing over that One sinner who repented. Now, given that heaven rejoiced when one sinner repented of sin and came to faith in Jesus Christ, can you imagine the rejoicing, the cheering, the singing, the shouting, the revelry every time that one saved sinner enters into heaven? Day after day after day, the first one to come in in a fully perfected, resurrected body was Jesus Christ as he professed, he processed rather into heaven. And ever since that time, beginning with the first martyr, Stephen, we've had believer after believer after believer, this stream of victorious Christians who found their triumph in Christ because Christ is the triumph of God. But you must, as Jesus says several times in our text, You must believe. What does it take to be part of that? It's the whole theme of the Gospel of John in many ways. You must believe. It takes faith to be a follower of Christ because Christ didn't come as a conquering king. Why do you have to have faith in him? Jesus, who would shortly be hanging weakly and helplessly on a cross, says, I am the way. Jesus, of whom the lies of wicked men are about to enjoy a tremendous victory, says, I am the truth. And Jesus, whose dead, lifeless body would be put in the tomb in just a few hours, says, I am the life. And so you must believe upon an ironic Savior. 
who gives you life by his death. And that's the only way. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can offer. You have zero credit with God. It is simply that you come by faith and you ask him. Here's here's a good way to ask the Lord for salvation. Lord, I'm a sinner. And only through Christ can I find my way home. Would you allow me to walk that same road through Christ that Christ has already walked through death and through resurrection as I repent of my sins? You must believe. You must believe. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We are grateful to you, Lord, for the clarity with which Jesus equates himself with God. And we're thankful for the the easy understanding that we're given now. That if we want to come to you, if we want to come to heaven, if we want to be saved, we must know you and this knowledge comes only through Christ. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for this passage, which Jesus just repeats himself over and over again. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And, Lord, now we have the privilege of coming to this portion of our worship where we really achieve the the heights of worship, that one thing that Christ asked us to do, to remember his death, to remember his body, to remember his blood. And we pray now, Lord, for our hearts to be sobered at what it took for us to go to our Father's house. It took the satisfaction of your wrath through the terrible suffering and death of Christ on our behalf. And so help us now as we ponder and remember the Lord Jesus and his death. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The amazing hymn, His Robes for Mine, is going to guide our thoughts through the Lord's table, and we'll sing it here shortly as well. His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. Clothed in sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. This morning, the Lord's table is open to all who have repented of their sin come to genuine faith in Christ and that you have demonstrated that faith by being baptized and by being fully associated with a faithful local church, whether this one or another one. If you are a recent convert and just haven't been baptized quite yet because we haven't offered that opportunity, we would invite you as well. Um, this is a heart issue, not, a, not an action issue. If you are not certain if you know Christ, eating this little cracker and drinking the cup won't do anything for you except give you a picture of the body and the blood of Christ, but it is not salvific, meaning it doesn't save you. It's just a symbol for us to remember the body and the blood of Christ, and it is for the believer in Christ. And parents, we would ask you always, as always, to shepherd your own children with the knowledge that you have of their hearts individually. Let's worship together in the Lord's table.